Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Welcome. This is The Interpreter Radio Show. I'm your host for this segment, Martin Tanner. This particular program is for the Come Follow Me curriculum, which is to be studied and taught January 15th through the 21st. And the material we're covering is 1 Nephi chapters 6 through 10. Before we jump right into those, The Interpreter Show is brought to you by The Interpreter Foundation, which has the mission of supporting the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. How? Through scholarship, which provides accurate information to the public and to church members about a wide variety of topics. You can find all of those on interpreterfoundation.org. The Interpreter Foundation defends the church against misunderstandings and against the comments of critics. It does wonderful research on history and doctrine. We also, of course, have a radio show, which is why you are hearing me. Nevertheless, the Interpreter Foundation is not own, controlled by, or directly affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the material the Foundation publishes is solely the responsibility of the authors and those who are broadcasting, like I am this evening. Join us each Sunday evening from 7 until 9 p.m. right here on the internet or live at AM 1640. The Interpreter Radio Show is during this segment also sponsored by Kimber Academy, which is a K through 12 private school, which unlike most private schools, keeps God in the classroom. Kimber Academy is a special place where teachers guide students through faith and morality with quality engaging materials on a wide variety of appropriate subjects. At Kimber Academy, every student's voice is heard and every parent's voice is also heard. In Utah, Kimber Academy is located in Linden, Utah. There are many other locations throughout the United States. If you want to find out if your child, your student, is a good fit for Kimber Academy and vice versa, call the director in Linden, Utah, Jessica Bianco at 801-382-7158. Jessica Bianco, 801-382-7158, or go to kimberschool.com. That's kimberschool.com. All right, let us dive right into the subject matter here for our first hour and that is First Nephi. And we're going to go to First Nephi here and start off 
in chapter 6. What's happened here is the plates of brass have just been retrieved through the beheading of Laban. And right before chapter 6 happens, we have a description of what the contents are of the brass plates. They are a record from the beginning all the way down through the reign of Zedekiah. And then we also have the genealogy of Lehi and his family. And we learn that they are from the lineage of Joseph, which is a fascinating thing. And after that, we have chapter 6, which is the official starting point. And so it starts off like this and says, Now I, Nephi, do give the genealogy of my fathers, because he just has it. Now he has this new genealogy from the plates. And it says, Neither at any time shall I give it after upon these plates, which I am writing. For it is given in the record which has been kept by my father, wherefore I do not write it in this work. And here we have this fascinating statement by Nephi about what he is going to write on the plates. And he says this, that it mattereth not to me that I am particular to give a full account of all things of my father. So he's not going to tell us everything about Lehi. Why? He says, this is verse 3, about halfway through, quote, For I desire the room that I may write of the things of God. So he's not going to write secular topics. He's going to write the religious topics. Why? Verse 4. For the fullness of mine intent is that I may persuade men to come unto God, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, so that they can be saved. And so he says, the thing which is pleasing unto the world, I'm not going to write. But I am going to write the things which are pleasing unto God. Verse 6, wherefore I shall give commandment unto my seed, this would be the Lamanites and Nephites, that they shall not occupy these plates with things which are not of worth unto the children of men. Now, the record keepers, the reason I say Nephites and Lamanites is because the farther along we go, we find that no longer are the Nephites and Lamanites, as, as they eventually split, um, this is not a genealogical distinction, and it's certainly not a racial distinction. This is a distinction that is based on belief. And there are some Nephites who are faithful and some Lamanites who are faithful. And so what he is saying isn't to one group or the other. It's to those which are of the children of men, of his seed, according to verse 6, who are seeking after God. Chapter 7 starts off and tells us that Lehi sends his sons back again so that something else can happen, and that is so that there can be posterity 
for Lehi and Nephi and their families. And what's going to happen here in verse 1, it says, well, let's start part way down here. Lehi is told that he should take his family into the wilderness, but not that he should do that alone, quote, but that his sons should take daughters to wife, that they might raise up seed unto the Lord in the land of promise. Now, there's foresight here, of course, from the Lord. And it came to pass that the Lord commanded him that I, Nephi, and my brethren should again return. Again, well, he's already been there to retrieve the plates and for other purposes. What's he, what's he doing? He's returning again this time for wives. And here he meets Ishmael and his family for the purpose of bringing them into the wilderness with them. In verse 3, And it came to pass that when I, Nephi, did again with my brethren go forth into the wilderness to go up to Jerusalem, it came to pass that we went up to the house of Ishmael. And Ishmael, and we did gain favor in the sight of Ishmael insomuch that we did speak unto him the words of the Lord. Verse 5's key, it shows his personality. Ishmael's personality. And it came to pass that the Lord did soften the heart of Ishmael and also his household, insomuch that they took their journey with us down into the wilderness to the tent of our father. And it came to pass that as we journeyed in the wilderness, behold, Laman and Lemuel and two of the daughters of Ishmael and the two sons of Ishmael and their families did rebel against us. So the rebellion happens on Lehi's side of the family with some and also on Ishmael's side of the family with some. And here you have the beginnings of the divide between the Nephites and the Lamanites. What are they rebelling about? Well, here it says in verse 7 that they were desirous to return to the land of Jerusalem. Well, that seems kind of natural. I, Nephi, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, spake unto them, and they were rebuked. Verse 10 is telling, they've seen an angel, but here's what's happened. They've rebelled against what's the, what the angel has told them. How is it that ye have forgotten that ye have seen an angel of the Lord? So, the angels told them to go, and they still don't want to go. Does that seem credible? The answer that I have is yes. I know a number of people who have had specific visitations, either from Jesus himself or from a deceased family member or in a dream or otherwise, and they have, nonetheless, to a certain degree, rebelled. So just because one needs divine instruction or intervention doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to be more perfect or 
immune from from a rebellion. There is, however, a price to pay for doing that. And we learn about that in verse 14 of chapter 7. Quote, For behold, the Spirit of the Lord ceaseth soon to strive with them, for behold, they have rejected the prophets. Who's he talking about? Those who are left in Jerusalem. But this also applies to Lehi and the others who have rebelled. Because if you reject the prophets and seek your own self-interest, which is not in conformance with the will of God, then you have problems. And what is, what is the nature of that problem? Verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord ceaseth to strive with you. And here we have some more information about what's been spoken of, about what's going to happen soon to those who are left in Jerusalem. People have rejected the prophets. This is again in verse 14. Jeremiah have they cast into prison, and they have sought to take away the life of my father insomuch that they have driven him out of the land. And then Nephi tells them, Now behold, I say unto you that if ye will return unto Jerusalem, ye shall also perish with them. And now, if ye have choice, go up. Go do whatever you want to do. And he kind of he kind of leaves it at that. And then what's their reaction? They are livid. And in verse 16, they bind his hands. Nephi is tied up. From there, we learn about the nature of the rebellion. Verse 16 says, they bound him with cords and they were going to take away his life or maybe they were just going to leave him out in the wilderness to be devoured by wild beasts. So maybe they were going to kill him themselves or maybe they wouldn't have the courage and so they were just going to leave him off out in the wilderness. Now, what kind of wild beasts would there be out in the wilderness that could devour him? Well, at this particular time in history, not now, but at that time in history, among the wild beasts that we know were around were lions. Lions at this point in time are no longer in what we now call the Middle East and and in Israel, but they were in ancient times. We learn about that from the story of Daniel and the lion's den and Archaeologists can describe how the range of lions has has diminished, but at the time Lehi left, it is very likely that there would have been, uh, among the wild animals that could have been encountered, lions who could have attacked who could have attacked them. Verse eighteen says, and it came to pass that when I had said these words, behold. The bands were loosed from off my hands and feet, 
And I stood before my brethren, and I spake unto them again. And it came to pass that they were angry with me again, sought to lay my their hands on me. But behold, one of the daughters of Ishmael and her mother and one of the sons of Ishmael did plead with them to soften their hearts, and they did. And at this point, we see Nephi's wonderful character because it says in verse 21 that he frankly forgave them for what they had done. It talks about them continuing on their journey and they finally make it back to the place. This is the last verse in chapter seven where Father Lehi is with his tent. And then we move on to to chapter eight, which is the fascinating vision of the tree of life. And in it, you have, well, let, let, let's just start out with some of the wording. I, my paraphrase will not be nearly as wonderful as if I read a bit and then describe a little bit. It starts off in chapter 8 of, of First Nephi. It says, And it came to pass that we had gathered together all manner of seeds of every kind, both grain of every kind and seeds of every kind, and then in verse 2, we have this dream. Or in other words, I have seen a vision. So here he's equating a dream with a vision. Verse 3, And behold, because of the thing which I have seen, I have reason to rejoice with the Lord because of Nephi and also of Sam. And then he says in verse 4, But mm, I fear about Laman and Lemuel because I thought I saw them in my dream. Now this phrase, me thought I saw, is quite an interesting one. We've read it over and over again, so it seems second nature to us, but it's something that we would never say during our, during our regular speech. Me thought I saw, I thought I saw, what does that really mean? Does that mean the dream was uncertain or the meaning of it was? We have a, a fascinating sonnet, Sonnet 23 by John Milton, where he says, Methought I saw my late espoused saint. And methought means something that is more certain than I may have. This is saying that you think something. In other words, it's a positive statement. I think this. I thought that. I thought that I saw. It's, it's a stronger statement than it sounds like to us in modern English. So let's, let's make that point at the outset. And then he launches off into his dream. So in his dream, what happens is that he sees a man in a white robe who beckons to him to follow. And so he does follow. And where do they go? Into a dark and dreary wasteland. And they travel for many, many hours. Finally, 
they arrive at a tree and it has fruit and in it he goes on to see he goes forth and this is verse 11 he goes to partake of the fruit and the fruit is most sweet above all that he had ever before tasted and he beholds that the fruit is white in exceeding it exceeds all whiteness that he had ever seen now notice this is a little bit like the vision that joseph smith saw joseph smith uses superlatives to describe god the father and jesus appearing to him brighter than the noonday sun what does that mean brighter than the sun well that means it's really really bright brighter than anything he can describe on earth this is something similar to what is being told in this dream that's exceeding all whiteness that he had ever seen it's whiter than anything he had ever seen this is an unearthly dream not just an ordinary dream so he partakes the fruit of the fruit and he feels great joy. And so he wants his family to partake of this. And the dream goes on and, and continues. And he sees a number of people who are beckoning to him with a loud voice. He it come it, verse 16 and it came to pass that they did come unto me and did partake of the fruit also and he was desirous that layman and lemuel should do it wherefore he cast up his eyes towards the head of the river that maybe he would see them and he wanted that but they wouldn't come to him to partake of the fruit in verse 19 we have this rod of iron Interesting phrase here, rod of iron. We would just say an iron rod. You know, we have that great song, the iron rod is the word of God. Well, that's not something the Book of Mormon ever says. It is a rod of iron. That phrase is a style that we don't typically see in English. It's a style that we do see in the Middle East. This is a construction that, that we would expect from a Middle Eastern source text. Verse 20, And he also beheld a straight and narrow path, which came along by the rod of iron, and it went to the tree by which he stood, and it also led by the head of a fountain to a large and spacious field, as if it had been a world doesn't say it was the world. It says as if it had been. And there were, verse 21 says, numberless concourses of people. We don't often remember how many people were mentioned in Lehi's dream, but it was numberless concourses. There were so many of them that they could not be numbered. There were also some that who got off the path and went into a mist of darkness and they were and they were lost they eventually it says in verse 28 went into forbidden paths and and were literally lost and as it goes on 
goes into greater detail and greater descriptions here about what's happening. And it, it's sort of a, a metaphor, and we will actually learn in, in weeks to come exactly what each of these elements mean. But there were people who were drowned in the depths of the sea, some who were lost from view, some who were wandering in strange roads, some who entered a strange building and were scornful of those who were doing what were true and correct things. And then we also have statements that in verse 36, and it came to pass after my father had spoken all the words of his dream or vision, which were many, he said unto us, because of these things, which he saw in a vision, he exceedingly feared for Laman and Lemuel. Why would he fear for them? Well, they're, they're off track. They're off track. And this, this is a little bit like leaving the 90 and 9 for the one who is, who is in trouble. Lehi is trying to reach out to those who are in trouble to help them. It shows his good and his kind heart. When we get to chapter 9, Nephi makes two sets of records, and each is called the plates of Nephi. The larger one has a secular history, and the smaller ones deal primarily with sacred things. Now, it says primarily because you have to have some kind of a context for the sacred things to be found in. So you have some secular context, which gives more meaning to the sacred things that are found upon them. Chapter 9. And all these things did my father see and hear and speak as he dwelled in his tent. And then it says that there were great many more things which are not written. So we know that this is a partial record. And he doesn't give a full account. Nevertheless, in verse 3 it says, I have received a commandment of the Lord that I should make these plates for the special purpose thereof so that there would be an account engraven of the ministry of my people. Then he goes on and talks about the wars and the kings and the contentions and the meaning that those things all had. Verse 5, Wherefore the Lord hath commanded me, says Nephi, to make these plates for a wise purpose in him, which purpose I know not, but the Lord knoweth all things from the beginning, wherefore he prepared a way to accomplish all his works among the children of men. Here we have Nephi writing an abridgment. He's not writing all things, but he is writing the most important things here. All right, and let's let's continue. Um, we we read here, of course, towards the end of chapter nine that this is a selective abridgment. 
chapter 10, our last chapter for this particular segment, has Lehi predicting the captivity of Israel by the Babylonians. I'll, I'll have more to say about that in just a minute or two. But there are a number of points to be made here. Let's jump into chapter 10. Verse 1 says, I, Nephi, proceed to give an account upon these plates of my proceedings and my reign and ministry. I must speak somewhat of the things of my father. And then he talks about the dream that his father has and also of exhorting the people to, to diligence. And he's also speaking in a broader way to them concerning the Jews. And in verse 3, it says, After they should be destroyed, the people in Jerusalem, even that great city Jerusalem, and many should be carried away captive into Babylon, according to the own due time of the Lord, they should return again, even be brought back to out of captivity. And after they should be brought back out of captivity, they should possess again the land of their inheritance. All right, let's stop just for a minute here. When was the captivity of Babylon? This event happened in 598, 597, uh, excuse me, 580, 89 through 587 BC. And it happened within a decade or so of when Lehi left. So he's seeing what is happening or going to happen very soon in the future. When Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, it was ruthless. There was a siege that took place against Jerusalem. People were starving to death. It was a very, very bleak undertaking. And when the gates actually fell, many people were hauled off into captivity. Men were take, many were taken to Babylon itself. Many others including Jeremiah, were taken to Egypt, where they were fairly well treated. And fascinatingly enough, that is where, a few hundred years later, after Alexander the Great conquered the known world and everybody was speaking Greek, that the Jews became fearful for their children because they spoke Greek so well, they, they didn't read Hebrew as well. And so the Bible, the Old Testament as we know, it, was retranslated into what is called the Septuagint. It has that title, which means 70, and, and the uh, history or legend surrounding is there were seven translators. I don't need to get into all that. But the Bible at the time of 300 BC when it was retranslated for the Jews, by the Jews, for their children in particular, the Old Testament became a writing in Greek. And so when they came back and occupied, as, as 
is foreshadowed here. The people who, the, the Jews who had been let off into captivity started to return when they were allowed, and they went back to Israel, and their children spoke Greek. And hence you have the New Testament being written primarily in Greek. And the Old Testament, as it was written by Jesus and the others, it was it was being read and written in Greek. It wasn't that they only spoke Greek, but Greek would be a bit like English today. Everybody can speak some English. Everybody in Jerusalem, upon the return of the Jews, could speak some Greek. Hence, you have the Old Testament written in Greek, the scrolls were written in Greek, and the New Testament, by and large, was written in Greek. It's something we don't often contemplate, but it's true. We don't have manuscripts in Hebrew of any of the New Testament books. All the earliest manuscripts, and presumably the originals as well, were written in Greek, and that is the reason why being led off into captivity when Israel was destroyed in 587 BC by Babylon. They went to Egypt, and after Alexander the Great conquered the New World, everyone spoke and wrote to a large degree in Greek. So there's a, a little bit of foreshadowing about the Old and the New Testaments that would come about approximately 600 years into the future. All right, so chapter 10 of 1 Nephi in verse 4 talks about 600 years from the time that my father left Jerusalem. A prophet would the Lord God raise up amongst the Jews, even a Messiah, or in other words, a Savior, and he also spake concerning the prophets, how great a number had testified of these things concerning this Messiah of whom he had spoken, or this Redeemer of the world. Wherefore, all mankind were in a lost and a fallen state, and ever would be, save they should rely on this Redeemer. And he also spake concerning a prophet who should come before the Messiah to prepare the way for the Lord. Here, of course, we have a foreshadowing of John the Baptist and then Jesus who would follow right after him. And we even have this statement about whose shoes latch it, I am not worthy to unloose in, in verse 8, which is a, a paraphrase straight out, straight out from the New Testament. Now, why... Why do we have this idea of a Messiah or a Redeemer and a prophet before the time of Christ? Well, the reason is because what you have is a foreshadowing of how the Jewish faith would be reformed. If someone had come down and talked to John the Baptist and said, are you Jewish or Christian? John the Baptist would have said, I don't even know what Christianity is. Uh, he, he was gone before, before that really happened. He was killed while Jesus was still preaching before there were 
Christian churches that were established. And even those early Christian churches, many of the people would certainly have thought of themselves as being Reformed Jews. And so the idea that Jesus or the Savior is Christian and not Jewish, that's kind of a dichotomy that our Western minds in our lifetime see, but not something that Jesus and John the Baptist would have seen. And then you get to verse 12, and it talks about baptism. This is baptism that's being mentioned 600 years between the advent of Christianity. Well, how could that be? What kind of baptism would you have on the plates that are being written here, or what would be described by the people? And the answer is, there was a Jewish rite of cleansing in a mikvah or or holy water bath. And it was repurposed by John the Baptist and by the Christians. It wasn't always in a holy bath or a baptismal font. For, of course, John the Baptist, it was in the River Jordan, but it was something that meant to be immersed. Baptismo, was, it comes from a Greek word that means to be immersed or cleansed. And so this idea, if I, I, I believe in my heart of hearts that if we could see the original scrolls that were written in Hebrew that are written by Lehi, that they would have been talking about a ritual cleansing as people joined the Messiah and John the Baptist, and that it probably would have had that Jewish word mikvah. But baptismal or baptized or to baptize is a perfectly good translation into English. It's a wonderful one, as a matter of fact. Verse 11 talks about what is going to happen. There is going to be good news or a gospel which is to be preached among the Jews concerning the dwindling of the Jews in unbelief. And it talks about how the Messiah would be slain. There are some that would see that as an anomaly. But shortly after this, at about 300 B.C., amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, there is a scroll that talks about the battle of the sons of light with the sons of darkness. And part of that text that, that's associated with that is what is called by many people, particularly two scholars, um, Eisenman and Wise, that their translation talks about a pierced Messiah text. And that is 300 BC, someone talking about a pierced Messiah. And so it's not a stretch of the imagination to think that at 600 BC, as we, or close to that, as we read in 1 Nephi chapter 10, that we would have a Messiah who would become and who would be slain. Those are concepts that had been around for a while, apparently. And then we talk about how the Gentiles in verse 12 and also the house of Israel would be compared to different olive branches that would be 
scattered around the earth and eventually grafted back into the same tree. And then we have in verse 13 this fascinating discussion about the lost tribes and what's going to happen with them and that they're scattered about on the earth and that they should be grafted back in in verse 14. We also have here statements about the Holy Ghost. And this is in verse 17 and in verse 18. This is a phrase that looks very Christian to us. The Spirit of the Lord is something that the Jews would probably have said. But again, this is a very good translation into English, and it conveys the idea perfectly to us. For the last couple of minutes here, I wanted to mention that in verse 18, it talks about God being the same yesterday, today, and forever. In what sense is that true? How is God the same yesterday, today, and forever? Well, the way that it's described here is that things unfold to the people that God unfolds what are mysteries unto them so that they are no longer mysteries, but things that are known as well as in times of old now and in the future. And it says in verse 19 that, quote, as well in these times as in old times and as well in times of old as in times to come, wherefore the course of the Lord is one eternal round. Now, that's a fascinating phrase, one eternal round. What does that mean? There are many people who have a difficult time with that. They, they think they understand, but they don't. One of the most simple ways to get at this concept is to get a hold of a, and you can find this online, Webster's Dictionary, 1828, where it talks about the meaning of the word round. We still have something that, that's, in a little bit more profane of a context where we say, oh, let's play another round of cards. Well, what is a round? It's, it's a sequence. It's something that goes from a known point to a conclusion, and you're going to do it again and again and again. A round of cards. Well, you could do a round of cards over and over again to take it out of a profane context into more of a majestic or wonderful or spiritual context, you would say, you would say that what does God do? He helps redeem people by helping them to be born and to be saved and to learn and to grow and to be resurrected and to be redeemed and to become like he is. That he does over and over and over again. And so each round is something that is part of eternity. And as Joseph Smith described it in the King Follett Discourse, and as we understand this phrase, one eternal round, what we get out of that is that God for eternity 
is one round after another after another helping new groups of spirits in one world after another after another to all progress and to become like him and to be saved. One of the, the, the greatest descriptions of this is one that Joseph Smith made in the King Fall of Discourse. It says that God's been doing this for a long, long time. Christ has been involved in many repeated cycles of creation. Moses was told this in our Pearl of Great Pearl of Great Price. Quote, by the word of my power, I have created them, meaning what? Other worlds. And quote, worlds without number have I created. And I also created them for mine own purpose. And by the same I created them, my only begotten Son. For behold, there are many worlds that have passed away by the word of my power, and there are many that now stand, and numberless are they unto man, but all things are numbered unto me, for they are mine, and I know them all. This is God's work. He goes through these cycles of creation, fall, redemption, judgment, recreation, on and on forever. This is the one eternal round that's being mentioned in 1 Nephi chapter 10, verse 19. One eternal round means, one, it's the same thing that happens over and over again. A round is like one segment from beginning to end. And the word eternal denotes that it will go on eternally forever. And I'll end, end with, with this idea. Therefore, this is starting in verse 20 of, of chapter 10. Therefore, remember, O man, for all thy doings, thou shalt be brought unto judgment. Wherefore, if ye have sought to do wickedly in the days of your probation, then ye are found unclean before the judgment seat of God, and no unclean thing can dwell with God. Wherefore, ye must be cast off forever. And the Holy Ghost giveth authority that I should speak these things and deny them not. Close quote. The idea here is, is not to make people afraid, but to nudge them into the right direction. God loves us all. The gospel is here, and it's a gospel of love. We are being nudged to become more and more like God and to be on his path. We'll be right back after this. Stay tuned. I'm Martin Tanner. You're listening to the Interpreter Radio Show. We'll be right back.